Got a lot on your mind this holiday season? We invite you to come to the coast, get together, and have a few laughs. You see on Film Podcast with Brian and Joe, we're doing Die Hard. It's here. Groovy. Film Podcast! Hello and welcome to Film Podcast with Brian Stumpf and Joe Friend. Here you'll find some bits and bobs of Hollywood ephemera as we take a deep dive on a specific topic. I am your host, Joe Friend, award-winning screenwriter, musician, pedantic man about town, and general polymath. Accompanied by my friend and cohort, a renowned independent film producer, writer, and director, Brian Stumpf. Today, well, Brian, I just need to ask you a serious question. Are you, in fact, menstruating right now? What has that got to do with it? Uh, are you the key master? Because that's not a question I would answer for anyone other than the key master. I think the correct answer is, what has that got to do with it? <laughs> I'm not a shocked head librarian of the New York Public Library. Yeah, and once again, you're a terrible laurel to my hearty. As per usual, in this stunning season one of ours, it's time to see if Brian is worthy of such an endeavor with Stump the Stump, where Brian gets to answer a handful of trivia questions prior to continuing. Here we go. I have not studied for this exam. <sighs> Stump Stump. What year was Ghostbusters released? That would be the year of 1984. All right, that was an easy one. This auteur's voice was used for Slimer, Azul, and the Levitating Dana. I do not know. Was it sound designer... Richard Begg? It was not, but in addition to supplying some incredible voices, he had another large contribution to this film. Was it Ghostbusters theme song? Here I'm talking about Ivan Reitman. Ivan Reitman, he, he did that? director of this movie, as well as the producer. He produced it alongside of Bernie Brillston, Michael C. Gross, and Joe Majuk. Anyway, what was used to cover Walter Peck in Stay Puffed Marshmallow Goo? Mm. Would that be uh, what they use for McDonald's milkshakes? Oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) It is not the McFlurry or the Shamrock Shake. It was 50 pounds of shaving cream. Oh, yes, of course. I told you I didn't study for this exam. These are only going to get harder. Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters song hit number one on the charts for three weeks, ultimately resting at number nine on the Pop 100 charts in 1984. Which song was number one? In 1984? That is correct. Um, Get out of my dreams and into my car. I'm feeling this one. Brian, why do we scream at each other? It was (laughs) When Doves Cry by Prince. This is why doves cry. (laughs) Yes. You need to go study up on your Prince, Brian, if we are going to remain to be friends. (laughs) Ghostbusters was the highest grossing comedy of all time until the release of this movie in 1990. Highest grossing movie of all time until this movie in 1990? Highest grossing comedy of all time until this movie in 1990. Uh, Would that be Commando or Stripes? No. Was it? Who's Harry Crumb? No. Uh, Let's start with, was, was Commando a comedy and is Harry Crumb worthy of being a highest grossing top movie? <laughs> that would be Home Alone in 1990. Home Alone. Oh, of course. How can I forget that? box office success, comedy success of Ghostbusters. Keep the change, you filthy animal. But the original title of Ghostbusters was not supposed to be Ghostbusters. It was going to be 
ghost hunters or ghost boobers? Ghost smashers. I think ghost smashers. That is correct. It was supposed to be ghost smashers. Luckily, they changed it. That doesn't sound like a great title to a movie, but who am I to know? Ghost smashers. <laughs> well, I think with the least with an F minus, you got some points on the board. So we're going to move on. And I think <laughs> apropos to beginning at the beginning, Brian, I think the first topic we should discuss is the beginning. How did this grip you in 1984? Uh, well, first off, how old were you in 1984? I was about a nine-year-old little narny. I was just uh, a young little sprite in the fields and pastures and gales of near Canada. Okay, near Canada. How did it grip you? It gripped me in a way that uh, mostly it was memorable for the, I was young, impressionable, and easily fearful and not ready for jump scares at that point in my age. So I was really taken aback by the beginning, the uh, New York Public Library, which is always considered a safe space in my world. I was lulled into the beautiful card catalog, which I miss. I think they should still have that. I was lulled into, I actually wanted to be a librarian at that age. That was my goal in life was to be a librarian. Oh, nice. You definitely have the clothing for it. <laughs> uh, I have the sartorial uh, features and the demeanor. That scene, which I think is most people uh, have remember that as being young and just not being ready for it in a comedy, when the uh, librarian ghost first appears, which is actually not the very beginning. Yeah, the very he, beginning is just the old head librarian just kind of being surprised by something. Let's take a look at the beats, like the setups of the film, because you're not quite sure what you're watching at this moment. The movie starts at the New York Public library next door to Bryant Park. It's the Stephen A. Schwartzman building and it's it's an iconic New York landmark and it's quite beautiful. And then we go to the basement and it's the music's kind of ominous. We definitely need to talk about sound design later and I'll cut back to this particular scene because the music I believe sets the scene itself. The librarian goes into the basement. You see a few books fly by. Then she passes the card catalog which was a neat physical effect where they <laughs> shot all the cards into the air with complete disregard for the Dewey Decimal System. I think Conan the Librarian would have something to say about Don't that. Don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? And Conan, then we the get just the hint of a ghost because as she's running away and she's trying to escape, she runs smack into the middle of just this monster that we do not get to see. And then, boom, we cut to the Columbia University basement. <laughs> We are introduced to Peter Venkman. The very first introduction to Peter Venkman we have is by a lipstick written on his window that says Venkman Bird in Hell. <laughs> so we already know this guy's a bit of a clown. And then the very the second scene after a scary scene is actually quite a humorous scene where Dr. Venkman has two college students being tested for ESP. So we know he's some form of parapsychologist. Yeah, it's very uh, reminiscent of my uh, college years. Now, I was actually a medical dummy, but we'll talk about that another time. You were a medical dummy? Yeah. I participated in medical experiments. They say some of these side effects should go away soon. Just don't <laughs> expose me to the microwave and or full moon. So we're in the basement and we see that again, that Dr. Beckman is kind of clownish because he's administering this test and he's got a guy whose hair is in a complete afro by this point because he keeps getting electrocuted. And then this beautiful co-ed whom creepy Venkman's making eyes at. The guy basically keeps getting him right. The girl keeps getting him wrong, but he keeps shocking the guy. <laughs> and then we start with the line nervous. Let's take a moment to point out how we're seeing 
being something that's a relic of the 80s, the womanizing, lecherous. He's not a professor. He's just more of someone who's uh, living out a grant on campus. And of course, he takes the opportunity uh, administering these tests to try to charm a young co-ed. I think that's definitely something of the 80s, the womanizing cad, especially someone in that uh, authority figure situation. I don't think that's unique to the 80s. It's more just of a one of life's tropes, people abusing positions of power, in this case, sexually or potentially for sex. <laughs> I don't think this is that podcast, but I do have a lot to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> this is the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In classic 80s fashion, it's Beckman character was rebelling against Ivory Tower, iconoclast, working on campus, not doing what he should be doing, probably as uh, prescribed by his grant. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, a lot of 80s moments, young, rebellious, street savvy people. I mean, he does have a PhD in, I think, psychology and parapsychology, but still. That is correct, which he informs Walter Peck of later in the movie. And it's also continues the trend of Venkman being at odds with authority. Yeah, classic Bill Murray figure. Why wasn't that in trivia, by the way? I could have answered that trivia. Well, you know, I didn't want to make it too easy for you. Do you want esoteric questions? There's no <laughs> essay portion here, Brian. This is more of a or multiple <laughs> choice. Short, short answer. answers. That's correct. Speaking of short answers. Nervous? Yes, I don't like this. You only have 75 more to go. Ah! Get a little tired of this. You volunteered, didn't you? Ray is very excited because he's received word from the gentleman at the library. I believe the librarian was played by Alice Drummond, the library administrator by John Rothman. So he receives word from the administrator that there was this thing that happened at the library. We go right back after... Dr. Vinkman makes his plans for the evening, and we wind up back in the library main room, which, if you're a visitor to New York City, I would definitely put it on your list of places to see, because it actually is a very beautiful building. Definitely uh, to check out. But uh, going back to that uh, whole opening scene, I also was like so young that that was shocking. To, well, no pun intended, shocking to me to, that this was in a comedy that people were actually getting electrocuted. So I was like, what kind of dark humor is this? I wasn't ready for that at that age. Bill Murray is a, is a rock star. We all know that. He's the man, the myth, the legend. This is a uh, quartet of people. This is our introduction to Dan Aykroyd who I would like to point out, since I live so close to Canada, I can practically hear the balladeering of Celine Dion from here. He actually is from right across the St. Lawrence River from my small town. And he's been in the area quite a bit. He got a speeding ticket here about four years ago. He's well known in this area. Uh, he has quite a few establishments. He a uh, huge supporter of Tragically Hip. We all drank his vodka, yeah. the Crystal Head vodka, yeah. which actually looks like a crystal yep. skull. Yep. But yeah, he's a local boy done good. He's still kicking around. He's still got his business ventures. House of Blues is still going well and I've been to quite a few of those. Just wanted to give a tip of the hat to Dan. Nice, Andrew. nice. Well, they lost their iconic House of Blues on Sunset Boulevard uh, recently. It was powered oh. over and reestablished. Did not survive the construction boon there. Um, but getting back to those ele electricity experiments. A lot of great memories uh, with the House of Blues, especially the uh, one in New Orleans where I think I saw Bo Diddley perform. <laughs> Getting back to the basement experiments of Dr. Peter Venkman, they are actually parodies of real experiments that happened in the 1930s by a Duke uh, psychologist named J.B. Ryan <laughs> using Zenner uh, cards. It was also inspired by the famous Milgram experiment in which subjects were given powerful shocks to strangers, ostensibly to study you know, how far people would submit to authority. He does get paid, though. I mean, I have been in a few of those experiments. I'm sure you have as well, Joe. I can just see the, uh, the scars from the medical ones. That's a sweet gig uh, when you can 
get it is uh, try to find ways you can be in a, a guinea pig, a science, science experiment in college. I mean, there's sometimes there's some sweet pay. Absolutely. Um, my forays in medical experimentation were when I worked for Penn University in Philadelphia. And got to participate in some studies Mine were mostly draw blood experiments and or be placed in an MRI machine. But we can talk about those a different day because we... Don't sell yourself short. I mean, I'm sure they'll get rid of that tail one day. <laughs> uh, it's vestigial and I like it. It helps me stay balanced. Uh, keeps me a good snowboarder, surfer, skier, all that good stuff. Uh, anyway, Ray Stance and Peter Venkman make their way over to the library and we meet Egon for the first time, whom is very focused on sticking a stethoscope onto a library desk trying to figure out what's there and we immediately get a look at uh what kind of relationship that they have because we found out that dr peter rankman stopped egon when he wanted to drill a hole in his own head uh, the, the term called trepanation most of those lines uh, are ad-libbed throughout the movie we're informed that we have a interview with the librarian she's laying down and, and egon asks her several questions come back in and they go ray it's moving and they go out and check out the basement and we are treated to our first comedic but actual visualization of a ghost. I mean, this was one of those first movies that was, I mean, first comedies, for me at least, that involved a ton of special effects and lots of creature effects. I mean, usually your comedies, you know, Animal House, um, no pun intended, there's no animals in that movie. I mean, of the actual animal sort. There was a dead horse, if I remember correctly. <laughs> okay, no live animals. But anyways, uh, special effects were a brand new thing for a young Brian Stump watching a comedy and thinking by surprise by, you know, how far they were going with practical effects. And they actually came up with like ectoplasm. And this is something new to Supernatural for me. I was like, so ghosts can leave some sort of residue and that's something that actually I think Ghostbusters kind of blaze the trail there because I think movies since then that involve ghosts sometimes do will reference some sort of uh, residual slime of some sort. Yeah and that's some mythology behind this movie is that Dan Aykroyd grew up surrounded by spiritualists. You know, they say his, his great grandfather mm -hmm. Samuel Aykroyd was a noted psychic investigator and they conducted seances at their farmhouse with other mediums etc. So it's interesting that this topic took root in Dan Aykroyd's mind and that the term ectoplasm came from prior seances where they said forget the uh, specific situation so we can go back and look but it was just that this this substance was emanating from one of the psychic mediums and it was just one of those extra fraudulent things that was done to add authenticity to their seances which had an early 19th century popularity I guess it was a great form of entertainment prior to movies like this. Movies that made us Ghostbusters was one of them. They interviewed Dan Aykroyd, one of two writers for this movie. Harold Ramis was the other one. So two comedic writers, Dan Aykroyd being interviewed, and he mentioned nothing of the actual crafting of the comedy of the film. He went way back to the seances and his experience with paranormal activity with uh, his family members and so on. So it's interesting. He, he just went straight to that. And that was the bulk of his interviewing was that kind of background and how that built into ghost smashers or yeah and there was a number of old slapstick movies where they were ghost hunting i know there was that was called ghost hunters laurel and hardy let's see there's also, of course, the whole Eben Costello versus the Frankenstein and Wolfman. That may have been a precursor that influenced uh, a young Dan Aykroyd when he wrote this script. You know, that beginning scene was also formative for me, just under the aspect of 
once again, establishing who these characters are as people, even once they find ectoplasm, which ostensibly would be the first credited discovery of paranormal existence. You know, Venkman still treats it as a joke, and he stops treating it as a joke almost the moment they turn the corner and the entire bookcase falls down right behind him and almost crushes him. This happened to you before? First time? <laughs> we're off. We're off to yet another corner where Venkman's on hot in the tail. Once again, with his nose buried in his devices, and he runs into the first full floating apparition, which is interesting. So they try to make communication. A floating torso. I mean, there's lots of great descriptions for ghosts in this movie. A lot of them are often called uh, free floating vapors, which was actually a nickname I had for you for most of the time in LA. This was my introduction to Bill Murray and a different kind of comedy with deadpan. I'm usually uh, used to like the madcap kind of slapstick inane comedy but this was an introduction to a de- the kind of deadpan that I, w- I aspired to after that and we already so, know that yeah, there's a bit of a bookcase falls element. right behind them we already knew there's a bit of a comedic element and they kept them separated but they married them at this moment uh and and you realize it wasn't going to be all fun and games that was a big moment for me because i was freaking scared as well so when they run away everyone in the theater is laughing but i'm like damn right they're gonna run away what's what's so funny about that they were more i think the rest of the theater was much more sophisticated about their scariness and it wasn't i mean years later is it really that scary eh, it looks pretty uh it's pretty fake actually i don't think they i don't think any real ghosts were harmed in this movie <laughs> it might be benign by today's standards where we have almost photorealistic effects, almost to the point that everything just looks fake anymore. Uh, I was equally scared, Brian. Oh, I have to tell you that I was also scared during E.T. I didn't like the alien and I wanted to leave. So, Well, you said it resembled him. It was like it was like a moment where you're wondering, maybe I'm from a distant planet as well. Maybe. And maybe you should go fuck yourself. <laughs> So you you got into the art of deadpan comedy and you look like you look at an actor like Sigourney Weaver, whom we meet uh, not long after that, because they go from riots moving. They go to get her. They go to the librarian turning into a demon. And suddenly they go back to uh, they run back to their office and they're, they're, they're laughing at each other. And Peter Vegman's told by the dean that they're poor scientists as they're getting moved out. I trust you're moving us to better quarters on campus. No, you are being moved off campus. The Board of Regents has decided to terminate your grant. You are to vacate these premises. So they hit on upon some bad luck and they're out of work. And they decide to go to business for themselves. So then they get the firehouse after they put a triple mortgage on the house that Ray's parents left to him. This was a cold splash of reality here. I uh, didn't realize that Dan Eckert's character, Ray, had to uh, actually mortgage his house with a 19% interest. You're never going to regret this, Ray. My parents left me that house. I was born there. You're not going to lose the house. Everybody has three mortgages now. But at 19%, you didn't even bargain As a grown-up, I was like, wow, it's, hopefully it turns out for poor Ray, because that's quite a, that's a steep interest. Yeah, but we also learned that that Ray's more of, he's just your passion-driven fool, because even as <laughs> even as uh, Egon and Peter are trying to negotiate price reduction on the firehouse, or, or I guess it was a bank. In actuality, it's a firehouse. It's quite a landmark in New York City. Uh, but they, Ray slides down the railing, and the, the realtor at that point says, like, yeah, dude, yeah. I'm talking to this guy. He's got the money, so I guess you're buying it. But then we cut to, and once again, the music. We cut to an apartment building that is rendered a scary apartment building simply by sound design. And we meet Dana and Lewis, and we understand what their relationship's going to be like. But I do want to talk about Dana, and I do want to marry it with Deadpan, because before that, Sigourney Weaver was the badass uh, in Ant.
alien. And she needed to try to get away from that. And she wanted to try her hand at a comedic role. And what better way than to play more of a straight character uh, off of Bill Murray in a comedic role? It's rumored that she got her part uh, during the audition, not by speaking at all, but by pantomiming the her transition from female to one of the terror dogs uh, in the film. And apparently that's what nailed it. So, so that's, that was interesting uh, in and of itself. Definitely, uh, I'm, I'm uh, impressed. Of course, Sigourney Weaver was uh, a huge crush to young Brian. I mean, she was one of the trifecta of Karen Allen and Terry Garr and <laughs> Sigourney Weaver. I agree with Terry Garr, especially Close Encounters and Mr. Mom. Oh, yeah. I agree with Sigourney Weaver, but only after Ghostbusters. Like, before that, <laughs> like, sorry, Alien scared the shit out of me. I, I've probably seen that at too young an age. I think I saw Scarface too young as well. <laughs> Both of those movies, to this day, I think I still have recurring nightmares around the alien mythology movies. Yeah, I'm glad she broke out of that. I mean, she was, uh, I think she was stunning and she has a captivating first name. Let's talk a little bit about the building itself, too. I mean, it doesn't really exist, but it has those gargoyles on it that are so ominous that are presented early on. We get kind of like juxtapositions here with like the lions of the New York Public Library. And then we have these gargoyles, these dogs. They're referred to as bears by Lewis Tully after uh, he's a bear in his apartment. <laughs> okay, who invited the dog? The terror dogs themselves, you know, they were based off of actual statues from an old church in Philadelphia. So that's one of those locations that you can visit because they're still there to this day. The apartment building itself does exist. It was blessed with some extra stories and a creepy you little top say. to make it look scarier than it is. Um, I made the pilgrimage when I lived in New York City to to go see the apartment building. And then when Rick Moranis runs across the street, he runs over to uh, Tavern on the Green, which is an excellent restaurant. I've eaten there one evening as well. So the lower part is there, but the higher part is not. And by the way, podcast fans, that was your Joe Friend Philly reference. So please drink. Drinking rules in the game. Show. That was another key scene where after he says he's having a classic party. I love that. <laughs> They're breakdancing, playing Twister and Parcheesi. He runs away and that scene at the um, Tavern on the Green. That was another 80s classic moment where the indifference of the uh, upper classes, Upper East Side Manhattan folk that are indifferent to the plight of the young and being chased by bears. And I mean, he is in the Cowan. Louis Tully is in the Cowan. All they see is this young raving guy just uh, outside of the glass of the of the exterior and he appears to be in trouble. He appears to be in great peril because of some sort yeah. of uh, demonic creature and they just kind of stop their eating for a moment and watch to see what could be imperiling this guy. It looks as though he gets, gets killed or gets something happens to him and he just slumps to the ground and they just keep eating. <laughs> I could argue here, now that you brought that up, that the music is the plot of the movie. Oh, yeah. Each part, the sound design, the music in every single scene tells you immediately how you should feel about this scene. <laughs> Dana has her own theme music, which consists of uh, a stringed orchestra. And since she plays the cello, that makes sense. And then the music that's playing when Lewis totally runs out of his own party after being chased by one of the prairie dogs. After Anybody want to play for Okay, who brought the dog? You'll notice 
the pity music from 1920s, 1930s, 1940s films is actually mm-hmm. playing at the moment. Like the string quartet that's supposedly inside the tavern on the green when Lewis is playing is actually like old timey, like hobo esque pity music when you know something bad's gonna happen to this guy, but nobody gives a shit because it's got an element of comedy and an element of also brevity at the same time. And you have to give mad credit to the guy who did the music for this movie. Uh, and looking at his credits, can't help but understand why. <laughs> so the music credit goes to Elmer Bernstein, done many, many movies, uh, including The Magnificent Seven, Far From Heaven, The Ten Commandments. He's just done so many things. Uh, the Gangs of New York, The Rainmaker, just to cement his status as just making every movie that he's been involved in. Oh, Spies Like Us. Oh, Jesus, that should be on this list. One of my favorite, favorite movies of all times. But I have a question for you, Brian. Brought up a scene where my absolute favorite quote from the entire movie is not spoken by any of our main characters, but it's just some random one-off remark made by a guy. Can you? Do you have any guess what that would be? Is it the guy in the carriage? What an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but that's after living in New York as many years as I did, that is a quintessential New Yorker. That that guy is awesome, but uh, it's very similarly uttered by a policeman talking to Dr. Venkman, who is visiting an apartment after the terror dog busts out of the apartment, and he just goes, Some moron brought a cougar to a party in a weapon circus. <laughs> that's, that's my absolute favorite line in the entire <laughs> ton of improv, but a ton of well written lines, and who knows, maybe that guy was doing some improv as well. Every little subtle moment, like, I love how he says he's having a classic party. Louis Tully is like this. So you got to love Rick Moranis. And uh, I mean, I was being uh, near the near Canadian border. I was, of course, acquainted with him from a strange brew. As Louis Tully, he has some great lines and um, he, it's interesting. He's kind of like the uh, classic 80s uh, young bachelor. Uh, he's an accountant, but he also is into fitness. He wants to tell people that he's like getting uh, vitamins shipped Not to just him. tell people, he wants to let Dana know that. Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah. That's his, that's his line though. That's, he's a that's his fit guy. Move. Well, hang on. Before you, before you go into Lewis, I got to tell you this little bull malt here. We, um, uh, I had a house in Maniunk in Philadelphia, uh, I guess in our 20s. And it was basically like the years when you live with friends and I lived with my brother and another friend. And we knew people in the houses up and down the street. And there was this beautiful young woman across the street whom we were friends with. And there was this guy, I forget this, this guy's name, so I'm not going to mention it. Uh, but we always called him Lewis because every time this girl basically came in and out of her house, he would be out there. <laughs> so whenever he was around, we, me and my buddy would always go, yeah, that's why I always invite clients instead of friends. <laughs> did he lock himself out of the it house? It was that bad. It was actually that bad that, that he that he did earn the, the nickname Lewis. I was way meaner in my 20s. I probably wouldn't give somebody that moniker nowadays. That that is a great line. That's why I invited clients, not friends. <laughs> he says that to someone at the party, so it's like the guy's thinking, "Oh, I guess I'm just." Well, a not, client not only here. does he say that, but he also indicates the cost of everything and how he's saving money. Uh, <laughs> and he also informs as he, his way of introducing people to other people is to also oh, yeah. indicate what their financial status is. There's every facet of this film has excellent story craft. For starters, it's basically textbook the paradigm. Uh, of screenwriting where what you do in act one what you do in act 2a what you do in act 2b and then what you do in act three like everything happens perfectly starting right from the beginning you know we're immediately interested and scared at the beginning but there's no big reveal then we see who the characters are and they kind of make you forget that there's ghosts involved then you go back and see the scary ghost and then we're introduced to these characters and and why we should care about them 
Peter should care about Dana, who lives in this scary apartment building. Every, every facet of it was perfect, which was surprising because the original screenplay was so strange. It involved uh, a time-hopping hunt gigantic monsters through space and time, um, which I don't think would have worked. But any movie where you're looking at a group that goes from nothing to something is wonderful. The movie was written by Dan Aykroyd and... Harold Ramis. Initially, Harold Ramis was not going to be in the movie, but then he realized that he wrote a character that he really wanted to play, uh, and that's how they got uh, the role of Egon. Dan Aykroyd, I think it was uh, originally his story idea, and yeah, obviously he was a, just a young screenwriter. He didn't realize that time hopping and all that was probably bumped the audience a little bit, and I think Harold Ramis was brought in from, I mean, he was a uh, SCTV, so a lot of Canadian sensibility to this whole movie. I hate to uh, shoehorn this in again, but we got Dan Aykroyd growing up in Toronto, near Toronto, and then Harold Ramis, actually from Chicago, but cut his teeth on uh, writing for SCTV out of Toronto. I think Harold Ramos was brought in later to kind of help kind of hone and focus. And you're right. It does have that 80s Americana of rags to riches in a way, because after they get kicked out of the university, they're just kind of like uh, just standing, I think, somewhere in the campus and they're just kind of hitting some some uh, cutty sark or something. And they're trying to figure out how they can make a move. It's actually apricot flavored brandy. Delicious. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> and they're trying to figure out how to go out on their own. And at first, it doesn't look good. Obviously, we talked about how we had to mortgage his house, but they get this sweet, this sweet uh, firehouse that they got to figure out how to pay the funds on. But they go into this scene where I think they make a name for themselves. Getting back to the, the screenwriting piece, because we'll talk about that scene right now, but I also need to mention that after this scene, they go into an excellent example of a movie montage because we can skip so much middleware going from this one scene to the the, the movie mon- montage alone. So, yeah, the scene obviously is they're, they're sitting up in the top of the firehouse lamenting over their lack of funds and eating Chinese food and being counseled, well, they'll slow down and chew your food. <laughs> Enjoy it. When they get a call, <laughs> they get a call from the lovely receptionist, Annie Potts, who plays yeah. Janine Melnitz, and she gives her line of the whole entire movie. We got <laughs> and then a blue song. He gets a ride down the uh, fire pole. And the important thing is kind of set up like the screenwriting kind of like before we go into this scene, this big uh, momentous scene of the mo- movie is it sets off. I want any pot says, yes, we promise to be discreet. They are completely discreet. <laughs> So then they show up and the first thing they do is scream, somebody's seen a ghost. Uh, Everybody's looking at these guys in this fancy hotel and it wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't go on a tangent. But there is a famous stand-in at this moment and the stand-in itself is a location. So while Ghostbusters is known as basically an iconic love affair with New York City, the scene of their first bust, you know, catching Slimers, which we're about to talk about in the quote-unquote Sedgwick Hotel, was actually filmed in a downtown Los Angeles hotel, which was another notable stand-in for the Beverly Wilshire Hotel in the movie Beverly Hills Cop. Do you remember the name of this hotel? How about that? Synergy. The uh, hotel in... Ghostbusters or the actual the actual hotel? hotel where they filmed both Ghostbusters, the interiors of Ghostbusters, and Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Hotel. Beverly Hills Hilton. It's the Millennium Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. I thought that was neat when I was checking out locations. I was like, oh, yeah, that's where they faked the interiors of the Beverly Hills Cop Hotel as a stand-in for the Beverly Wilshire uh, across from Rodeo Drive. 
and yet another whimsical tangent. So we go into the hotel, the Cedric Hotel. I love that little moment where they're talking to a guy who's like just the kind of old New York City curmudgeon guy. What are you supposed to be, some kind of a cosmonaut? <laughs> no, we're exterminators. Somebody saw a cockroach up on 12. That's got to be some cockroach. Bite your head off, man. Pumping on a cigar at, at the elevator. They're just standing there with their the packs on their back, what they call They didn't name them in this movie, interestingly enough. They didn't get their name. They were called proton packs. Proton They didn't receive yeah. their name until the second film. But in the first film, they referred to them variously as positron slider and unlicensed nuclear particle accelerator. They just didn't really give them a name. And in the elevator, they're all standing next to each other. And I love this scene because they're, they're basically lamenting that they have the unlicensed, unlicensed nuclear particle accelerator on the back. And they haven't had a completely successful <laughs> test yet. No sense worrying about it now. Why worry? Each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back. Yep. Let's get ready. Switch me on. And then they switch it on and you see Egon like just like inching over against uh, uh, Peter Venkman trying to get away from Dan Aykroyd uh, in the uh, elevator <laughs> itself. And then after they get out of the elevator, you know, they start walking down the hallway, immediately hear a noise behind them. And both of them, Ray and Egon, turn around and almost fry a hotel maid. What the hell are you doing? Sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. We thought you were someone else. And that, like, like that's a viable <laughs> excuse for what they did. And if you, I don't know if you see her in the background, but she's trying to spray. I know, out. and she's like spraying Windex on some of the like burnt carpet. Yeah, while, while they're talking, there's, there's a lot of sight gags like this in the movie that if you're, if you're paying close attention. And even like later on in the movie, when they go to get the bill for this place, you see you see Egon in the background holding up the amount of fingers for how many thousands of dollars this thing costs. Lots of little bits, little bits to pick up. So on. I think they they meet uh, they meet one of the star characters of the whole series at this moment do they not joke they do they meet slimer also known as onion head to the casting crew which <laughs> is talked about in movie lore as being an homage to john belushi who was supposed <laughs> to be in this film but who died prior which is very sad but i don't think that's much of an homage Hitman, i saw it i saw it i saw it it's right here right it's looking at me he's an ugly little spud isn't he I think he can hear you, Ray. Don't move. But real quick, it can you list some you. other actors who turned down roles in this film? No, there was a, there was quite a few other people that were going to be chosen instead of Ernie Hudson's character. And I think, uh, was Eddie Murphy offered so, that role? Yes, Eddie Murphy was offered that role. And I believe he deferred because he was making Beverly Hills Cop, <laughs> which is a good deferment. John Candy was one of the role of Louis, which went to, or sorry, Lewis, which went to Rick Moranis. But he turned it down because he wanted to play it as a good goofy German with two dogs and they didn't want more dogs in there. But the noteworthy characters are the ones who turned down the role of Dr. Peter Venkman and you know as you know when you watch a movie you're like nobody else could have played this role. But it was mm -hmm. Chevy Chase, Michael Keaton, Steven Gutenberg. You know Gutenberg went on to make Police Academy which I don't know who's to say who's right or wrong. That's kind of a funny movie. Definitely it doesn't stand up the test of time but at its time it was interesting. I also believe that the role of Egon was tossed about before it was given to one of the screenwriters. I think Christopher Walken. Can you imagine that? Christopher Walken as Egon, John Lithgow, Jeff and, Goldblum. And but uh, from, uh, I think they uh, hit Goldblum. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, that would have been pretty uh, special, I think. So. so we meet Slimer. 
He's just sitting there minding his own business and Dan Aykroyd immediately tries to book him. <laughs> so that by the time when he runs into Peter Venkman in another hallway, he's quite pissed off. <laughs> I know, that's pretty funny. I mean, he's just trying to enjoy some room service. It's left outside of the room. He should have liberty to just, it's wasted food. So let Slimer be Slimer. They try to zap him and then he's just right pissed off. So when Venkman sees him. What happened? Are you okay? He slimed me. That's great! Actual physical he gets content! <laughs> but that, that's not what I centered in on. I centered on, what if this movie was made today using the compassion that we all embody, it would be quite a different movie. It would be, how do we respectfully introduce Slimer into our shared society? Maybe that is his role. Maybe he gets to take care of food waste and it's actually a good thing. What, yeah. What does Ray call him? An ugly little spud? That's not fair. He is an ugly little spud. I think he can hear you, Ray. <laughs> that's one of the iconic lines of the whole film is when uh, when Venkman faces down the uh, pissed off Slimer uh, it just comes at him you would think you're kind of wondering you're kind of scared for him you're like wondering what's going to happen is he going to get possessed or it's interesting uh, he doesn't Slimer doesn't possess people he just likes to fly through them and slime them so interesting MO for a ghost he gets chased into the ballroom which is neat oh, yeah. to be set up and in pristine condition because it's going to have the midnight gala is going to be there at some point <laughs> Yeah, the whole ballroom scene is amazing because it's another example, and we've been seeing this quite a bit, Joe Fran, throughout the throughout our series on the 80s here, is wanton destruction for comedic sake. I mean, I think that's been seen throughout several of our movies, particularly Beverly Hills Cop. This is getting into the theme where it's these rebels that are just tearing the shit out of this high-class gala, random wanton destruction going on all over the place. Purportedly to get the effect of Slimer flying around the chandelier, they just spray painted a peanut green and spun it on a string. They figured since <laughs> since the shot was going to be so short that they didn't need to do much more than that. Such ingenuity before CGI. Such such ingenuity, and then we are treated to one of the finest montages uh, in uh, mo movie history, <laughs> which shows the arc of the Ghostbusters becoming well established as a business, but also becoming famous. And it starts with a interesting little bit of sound design with the siren of the ectomobile yeah. which was actually a leopard's snarl <laughs> that was then <laughs> really? that was then pitched that. down and and processed in various different ways by the sound designer Richard Beggs to become more of a siren and, it, and not until I was informed of that that I go back and listen again and be like oh yeah you can hear a little <laughs> bit of a little bit of cat-like noise in there. What kicks it all off is actually my favorite line in the whole movie. It's actually how Joe Friend and I end every one of their podcasts with this very same line. After they contain Slimer, they burst out of the ballroom and say, We came, we, came, we, we saw, saw, we kicked, we kicked his ass, which is what we say after every podcast. I don't think we say that. The montage was interesting, but it featured several famous television anchors, as well as many famous covers of newspapers and magazines. It also had Playboy model featured in there, Kimberly Ellen Heron as the floating ghost, um, which was excellent. Uh, all good stuff. So Brian, interesting thing that you should bring up, inspiration. The uh, soundtrack for Ghostbusters, the composition, is really unique uh, sound. It's got a mishmash of old and new synthesizers that really gives the, the film its own aesthetic. The composer was Elmer Bernstein. He did Wild Wild West, The Magnificent Seven, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, among other things. That's not the most interesting part. They included what is called an Andes Martinot, which is like this weird organ slash string theremin slash electrified woodblock. And it was really one of the first electronic instruments. It was introduced to the public in 1928. 
So I would suggest that if there are any musicians in our listening audience, go out and Google the Andes Martinot and learn a little bit more about this instrument and how uh, the person who invented it died before it became popular and they didn't know how to use it. It's just, it's a pretty interesting thing. Uh, but it was resurrected in modern music by Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead fame. So any of the Radiohead fans out there would probably immediately know uh, the sound that I'm talking about. So I just found that interesting in our research. You exquisite musical nerd. Thank you for that deep dive. I never even heard that instrument. All I know about this movie is the whole Ray Parker Jr. song. That's basically my introduction to the movie entirely was the music video in which he had cameos of every single, well, not every single, but uh, Dane DeVito was a interesting choice. But uh, yeah, it's that music that Danny kind DeVito, of Chevy Chase. I was uh, most introduced to this movie. But, but yeah, that was uh, Johnny Greenwood. He's one, he's one of the weird sisters, I think, in Harry Potter, but also, yeah, Radiohead fame. And he's done a lot of movie work, I think, since. Speaking about uh, Ray Barker Jr., uh, have you heard about the uh, controversy? There was some controversy, but I also want to touch on <laughs> the music video because you brought up something fun was that a number of people who auditioned and either didn't get the part or turned down a role in the movie appeared in the music video regardless. I just thought that was fun. There was like this well-knit family of actors back then. The controversy. So Huey Lewis was asked to perform the title sequence song uh, and he turned it down. And I think that left little time for Ray Parker Jr. to uh, step in and create his song. And he was later Mm -hmm. sued by Mr. Lewis in the news for it sounding like I want a new drug. As a musician, it doesn't sound enough like I want a new drug to I me. listen to it. I've heard the comparisons. The way I see it, if Huey Lewis was not approached first, then there would be no lawsuit. But the fact that he was approached first, declined, yeah. and then this other song came up and had certain notes, I think that's where I guess they yeah. decided, well, okay, all right, fine. But uh, yeah, I think it stands apart. And I'm, I wish there was more from Ray Parker Jr. I mean, that's a catchy tune. I love uh, how he came up with the idea of having Ghostbusters shout it out. Was One of his kids uh, just kind of loved the title <laughs> of the movie and just would shout it like that. And so that was, that was, I mean, yeah. there's artistry in that. I mean, I know it's a pop song, but uh, I know it gets unfairly re- compared to uh, I Want a New Drug, but I, I wish there was more from Ray Parker Jr. Just by the evolution of music and sampling, et cetera, was just beginning right around then. And as we know, it grew up into an industry that lots of songs are well sampled now. And they all have tiebacks to the original song and they have to get permission or not. But what it does is it ends up increasing the popularity of the older song as well. That's a good point. That's a good point. So, Mr. The News, you made a mistake, sir. And there's a lot to say about that song, but you know this was a Dan Aykroyd movie because there was a blue song. There was kind of a blue song in there. I think it was like Clean Up the Town or something like that. Yeah. 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 That was their their first gig. Secretary presses the button, screams, we got one, and off they oh, go. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Brian, in 1982, <laughs> let's let's get into how this movie uh, came about uh, real quick. Sure. Because in 1982, Ivan Reitman, Joe Medjuk, and Michael C. Gross were planning to make a film of the sci-fi novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's one of my favorite books of all times, and I just can't imagine that they got to work with Douglas Adams, who wrote <laughs> uh, multiple drafts for this project. Terry Gilliam is another person who was lucky enough to be able to work with uh, Douglas Adams. 
Adams, but excellent author, excellent book. And they were considering Bill Murray or Dan Aykroyd play Ford Prefect. And then uh, Aykroyd sent them the idea for this movie and they decided to do that instead. And, you know, I guess that kind of makes sense. Uh, if you've seen the more modern version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's a really expansive book to try to mm-hmm. nail in a single movie. And I don't, I don't think they hit it with that level of ambition the way that they wanted to. In fact, I don't think the modern version did a great job. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a core audience for Hitchhiker's Guide. With Ghostbusters, it kind of hit all the marks of uh, clearly a, bo- a blockbuster kind of movie, you know, rags to riches. I mean, I think that was actually brought in later in later drafts. I think Ackroyd had it so that uh, they were already established and they just kind of burst out of the uh, the firehouse or wherever their headquarters are. That's how it started in the original draft. But then they wanted to kind of get to the point where they, you know, started as mere meager scientists and then kind of worked their way into entrepreneurial business. I think they found perfection because <laughs> you wouldn't have cared as much for the characters if you weren't rooting for them in such a way. Yeah. These, these down and out, smart alecky, adult man babies falling bass backwards into a new nascent Those industry. Those characters are, they're, they're such a rabid core audience for hitchhikers that uh, if anyone were to play those characters, then, you know, they, they would, the fans would be a little upset if there was too much bull, if it was too much Bill Murray instead of Ford Prefect. So I think that's why, another reason why they chose to do Ghostbusters because they, wanted to have Bill Murray and uh, they knew they could get him and they just wanted to be have Bill Murray be Bill Murray. I don't think our multiple head technology was perfected <laughs> then either. So it would have been hard to play Zaphod Bibelbrox because of that. Uh, in fact, on the old TV show, the old English one, OE, they gave him like a plaster of Paris head. If you look up old pictures of that. Everybody looks pretty freaky. Yeah, the technology wasn't quite there in 1984, I don't think. But Bill Murray definitely hitting his stride. There was definitely going to be an excellent group with Bill Murray in this, but he didn't actually agree to this movie effort. He agreed to do this movie only if Columbia financed another movie called The Razor's Edge uh, with him as the star. And it was going to be a remake. Um, and this was the one that was going to you know, help pivot Bill Murray as a well-rounded actor. And I guess he was very excited about this. He made zero dollars from <laughs> Ghostbusters. And The Razor's Edge was a bomb, so he didn't make much money from that. So, But he parlayed that into lifelong career. It's hard to say. Was this a mistake? I admire Mr. Murray's passion. And I don't know if you've ever had a chance in with him, but he, he passed us on the street one time and swung back around and said hi as we were sitting outside having a, a cocktail, my friend Mary and I, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. But what about you, Brian? It's interesting. He did try and make that dramatic turn. M. Somerset Mung, however, however you pronounce his last name. I read of Human Bondage and great writer. And I think Bill Murray just kind of appreciated his existential view on life. That gets brought up in, uh, I don't know if you've seen this uh, Bill Murray documentary, the Bill Murray stories, life lessons learned from a mythical man and kind of goes into all these uh, chance sightings of Bill Murray. I personally have not, but uh, someone I worked with in Los Angeles, um, it was actually, he was traveling and supposedly they were friends of friends uh, of Bill Murray. I don't know how it happened, but he just happened to be traveling through most of the France countryside with Bill Murray uh, kind of in the group. So that just kind of, there's so many examples of that in the the documentary where he kind of lives a life you aspire to. Excellent point. I've heard this similar from (laughs) other people. Just quick question. Would you recommend the book uh, of Human Bondage? I'm going to Google Human Bondage (laughs) right now. I wouldn't Google Human Bondage. (laughs) I think the of is important and maybe the author's name, but uh, he's a good writer in that it's mostly uh, autobiographical. Kind of a sad sack kind of story, but um, don't Google sad sack as either. (laughs) All right, moving on. Some of the 
ad hoc lines in this movie, speaking of Bill Murray, of course, is when he gets to uh, probably one of my favorite lines in any movie anywhere. When he gets to Dana's apartment after Dana is possessed as a minion of Gozer, she goes, do you want this body? He's like, is this a trick I question? I make it a rule never to get involved with possessed people. Actually, it's more of a guideline than a rule. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll play the quote here, but he's like, go ahead. No, I can't. <laughs> Sounds like you got too many people in there already. Anyway, so that effect, that effect where Sigourney Weaver's floating is actually mm-hmm. a physical effect. They basically had to put her into a full body cast uh, and it was attached to a post and hidden by curtains, et cetera. She had to work her way up. And so it was interesting how they blended different aspects of filmmaking in order to gain both special and physical effects. This is an interesting movie because it helps you figure out when you do special effects, what kind of features make it something that's horrific or something that can be actually interpreted also as comedic kind of writhing and it would be kind of scary to see them floating but the way that bill murray react it's not super horrific or anything like that comes in later how they um, transform into the uh, terror dogs it's interesting because that could have been done yeah. in a very horrific american world from london kind of way it's kind of done in a way that doesn't totally frighten the audience uh, not to get too far ahead in spoilers but uh, we see them come back from being terror dogs but yeah that those special effects are done in a specific way so that it's i mean other than that very first uh ghost appearance in the in the library most of the effects are done in a way where it's not super frightening when they actually could have been i think that's the combination of the actor response as well as the music at the time because i don't know if you know there's like different theme songs when they're together they have like some janky little piano music like (laughs) with like a trumpet with a mute in it um so you get this this goofball vibe when they're together i think all these things blend together to make it into the the masterpiece that it is there's a good scene where we see the ghost flying like that music you're talking about we see them flying kind of emerging from the containment unit that music they're like what's it what's he saying like that song magic I believe in magic, magic. <laughs> Old synth pop yeah, song. It could be considered scary that all these beasts are flying around, but the kind of background music and the like, kind of jazzy. It's a song by Mick Smiley okay. called, called Magic. Uh, okay. Or I believe it's magic. <laughs> uh, but it's just an old synth pop song. It's pretty cool. Pretty interesting yeah. song. It's like, <laughs> some MIDI synth and some, some backwards effects and stuff. Uh, and some, some pre-delay on the vocals <laughs> to give it this ethereal sound. But you're right, that was pretty cool. Yeah. I like to take it back to that containment unit for a second because... Yeah, I know what you're going to say, but say <laughs> It's not fair that they paint this organization with such a negative brush. Oh, yeah. Walter Peck, William Atherton, comes in as somewhat of a villain, similar to how he came in slimily in Die Hard. But he shows up. Interesting that it's actually kind of a New York Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah, it's the EPA. It's the Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah, the EPA. And he's there. He's kind of coming in as a villain. I mean, he's like, I need to see this containment unit. And they're like, no, he's like, come on. I'm like, I'm part of the Environmental Protection Agency. You got to let me to see it. And so he kind of threatens them to kind of get to the containment unit. And they still say no. But he, I think he gets some muscle to kind of come in with him. Uh, like, what is it? Local New York policeman to kind of he has Join the police him. there, and he has a uh, search warrant and a cease operation. My friend, don't be a jerk. Step aside. If he does that again, you can shoot him. You do your job, pencil neck. Don't tell me how to do my. Oh yeah, you get the warrant. 
<laughs> this movie is kind of like that quintessential New York movie, and maybe we'll get that get into that more in the climax, but uh, or when, when we discuss our the climax. But um, yeah, it's just uh, if you live in New York State, and I know you have as well, uh, Joe. But uh, there does seem to be uh, kind of an entrenched kind of dislike of New York bureaucracy. I know it kind of happens there in California as well. When you have these big cities, and the you know the rest of the state is just trying to deal with like all these kind of rules and regulations and and government men and all that but so that was an interesting choice it's an environmental protection agency guy that comes in and kind of breaks out um you know he doesn't mean to, he doesn't realize or doesn't think it's going to happen but he actually breaches the containment unit and out go the ghosts that's a pretty cool scene everybody's running out of the <laughs> firehouse and you have uh lewis tully key master of gozer at this point like <laughs> li- literally like shuffling out like a loose bear <laughs> As sparks fly out behind him. I thought that was an excellent scene. Just back when, yeah. as a younger man, I'd look at movies and be like, wow, how did that guy not catch on fire? <laughs> Play the Mick Smiley magic song. We see this brief pause where Dana just standing at her apartment window and bam, she blows up I the think wall. it kicks off Act 3 because that's yep. what leads to the climax. Ghostbusters are in jail. Ghostbusters has gotten his or her two trusted minions. Uh, the Keymaster and the Gatekeeper are together. I think Zool, the gatekeeper, and Vince Clortho, the key master. I don't know. I, I don't see keys or gates in the climax, but that's what they do because they're announcing the arrival of Gozer. And so, yeah, we're kicking off and they end up in jail. After they transformed into terror dogs, they then opened the gate with their lightning bolts. Oh, were those, those the keys? <laughs> I think so. I think once the two get together, lock and key, baby. <laughs> Store's open for business. Before you get there, though, <laughs> uh, they're in the jail. So uh, that was, that's pretty funny. It's kind of helping us lead up the stakes of uh, what this whole thing could mean if Gozer were to arrive. That's correct. They explain that the whole building is basically an antenna for the supernatural, which is interesting. <laughs> then they get to go see the mayor and Peck's there again to get harassed, except this time the Ghostbusters win because of <laughs> the opportunity to save the lives of millions of registered voters. Getting back to what you're talking about, we get to quintessential New York. Anytime the cops show up and there's a National <laughs> Guard shows up, there's bound to be a crowd of people there. <laughs> just like, oh, is this dangerous? Let's just go check it out and hang out and see what's happening. It's about not losing votes you know lots of voters could you could actually swing the election by going with us and in that scene is one of my favorite Venkman lines when they're trying to establish the stakes that are going on and this is apocalyptic and Venkman says dogs and cats living together mass hysteria Apparently that being one of the all-time movie quotes by many lists, but also, uh, I believe, completely added. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> As was most of his lines in this movie. So. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff in the movie, of course, you know, we talked about how Dan Aykroyd's family were spiritualists, but the name Gozer was a name documented in a haunting oh, yeah. in England. And apparently this this name was written mysteriously throughout the house and on the walls and stuff. Pretty sure I could, those things are easy to go back and repudiate. <laughs> you could just be like, oh, you know, schizophrenia wasn't as well documented as it is now, <laughs> stuff like that. But just an interesting Yeah, a little bit of a background research by the uh, Aykroyd family. Well, let's just talk about Gozer. Yeah, when she, when she arrived, he, whatever it was, something happened to me, Brian. I was like, oh, yeah. It's my kind of girl. When Gozer arrives? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, high I mean, heels, about- skin-tight pants, cotton balls. No complaints. <laughs> yeah, when Gozer arrives, when she, uh, she, he finally arrives, that was a kind of a big deal for little Brian because I wasn't sure what I was looking at, but who, uh, whoever he or she was, 
was scantily clad, mostly in bubbles, kind of see-through. I don't know what's going on, but it was a very con- exciting and confusing moment for young Brian to see. And also, we're supposed to be fearful of her, and she does have red eyes, but she does seem to have a, uh, a feminine body. She had a stance. Sure. <laughs> I should point out, just to kind of clarify and uh, make clear, she was performed, Gozer was performed by Yugoslavian actress Slavica Jovan. So they were trying to go for a David Bowie Players from Mars uh, thing going on. So I don't know. But yeah, okay. that was a, that was an interesting introduction to a villain. They achieved that. Of course, she, what does she <laughs> ask them when she first meets them? Oh, yeah. Are you a god? Ah, you have to say it right, Brian. Say it right, Brian. <laughs> I can't say it like Gozer because give it a shot. Voice our, our, listen, our listeners, our listeners demand you say this right. Are you a god? Something like that. Are you a god? No. Then. Yeah. Zap, she kind of brings it up from the left side and then just throws out these thunderbolts and uh and then winston's uh best line in the whole movie which happens all the time i mean you know in the club everyone's asking are you a god and so as we learned from ghostbusters at that inopportune moment you're supposed to say yes they get the opportunity to choose the manifestation of gozer of course <laughs> after they yeah. purportedly vaporizer and we have the giant stay puffed marshmallow man's appearance because of something ray did get again <laughs> uh you know i'm not going to cover that too much other there. than just to note that you know obviously that was what? probably one of the scenes what? that made this movie most memorable it's not often I, that you see a 50 foot tall marshmallow man um, no it can't be what is it it can't be. What did you do, Ray? Oh, shit. Yeah, I mean, there was an appearance earlier in the film. They actually planted a seed where uh, Dana, Dana's apartment, uh, Swim Beaver's character, actually gets a bag of Stay Puft marshmallows. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Next to the eggs. Kind of iconic, quintessential uh, New York illusion that we're recognizing there is King Kong taking on New York. A large figure that uh, menaces New York is ushered in by King Kong. Stay Puft mm-hmm. holds his own uh, in that role. Rekindled by the new versions of the Godzilla's movies, as well as Cloverfield. I think Cloverfield was an excellent representation of giant monster in New York meets shaky camera first person footage. Well, the quintessential response to seeing Stay Puft is raised, try to think of the most harmless thing I possibly could. And then as Stay Puft approaches, uh, another great line from Beckman, he um, comes over to one of the... one of the cathedrals or one of the churches and uh Bankman, probably ad lib from bill murray says no one steps in a church in my town ray has gone bye-bye egon what have you got left sorry Bankman. i'm terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought and then they decide to cross the streams oh, yeah. to close gozer's gate and gozer's the, gate yeah <laughs> the ensuing explosion liquidates the stay puff marshmallow man um, and then mr peck gets dumped upon by 50 pounds of shaving cream. (laughs) Then we get to the bad news. Do you want to tell everybody the bad news, Brian? They defeat Gozer. It's interesting that Gozer lets them choose their demise. And uh, and then that's it. I think that's it for Gozer. But then there's, I think they cross the streams and a huge explosion. But that's the climax. And what I forgot and what I referenced earlier was that uh, Dana and Louis, Louis Tully, both kind of transform into terror dogs. And so it was done in a very subtle way not horrifically so when uh the after the climax uh we see venkman walk sadly over to one of the baked 
terror dogs. Both dogs were um, baked pretty good with the explosion of the crossing of the streams. And at first I was like, what's going on? Why is he so sad about this baked terror dog? And I was like, oh, wait, wait a second. That's And everyone's like, oh, Vankman, I'm sorry. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess uh, Dana was uh, was that dog or uh, was the previous yeah. iteration of that dog. And so then I was like, oh, well. But then they do kind of an interesting kind of way of uh, still get it, still having a happy ending. Uh, so if you go through that uh, baked exterior of the dog, uh, that's where the still alive Dana and Lewis are. So they just kind of have to break through and Ghostbusters helped them out. But yeah, at first I was like, well, I forgot that she was transformed into this dog. And wow, this is kind of clever that they can still get their um, happy ending by uh, Sigourney Weaver and uh, Rick Moranis being able to break through the crusty exterior of this t- these terror dogs yeah i think that was a really interesting an- another physical effect basically ensconced in statue of a dead terror dog <laughs> very interesting and then we get our happy ending talk us down brian take us in for a landing here <laughs> i have no i mean i'm sure you have a few final thoughts yourself but uh, a few gr- still a few great lines um again very quintessential new york when venkman says let's show this prehistoric b how we do things downtown so i'm not uh I don't know who's listening. I don't want to use that such a harsh term. But also, uh, and also another thing that uh, Venkman says after the climax is uh, something that I say very frequently, but then no one, it's such an outdated reference that no one seems to get it. But uh, I love when uh, Pete, or uh, when uh, Pete Venkman says, it's Miller time. And everyone's like high-fiving and uh, I'm still doing that to this day, but it was a very short-lived, I guess, commercial back in the 80s. Memorable, but uh, I think it was brought up in other movies. But yeah, it's Miller time. And doesn't really have the resonance today as it used to. If you're listening out there, Miller Coors Brewing Company, <laughs> you should get back Bring on back. it. Golden opportunity, <laughs> courtesy of Brian Stone. Yeah, and Lou, uh, Louis Tilly has a pretty funny uh, line as he's kind of he's kind of really out of it and just kind of walking around like, hey, I, what's going on? And he looks around and sees like the remnants of uh, Stay Puffed. And he's like, boy, the superintendent's going to be pissed, which was kind of an introduction to uh, New York City living for a young Brian because I wasn't familiar with superintendents or supers or living in an apartment. Do you have any uh, familiarity with that yourself there, Joe? Yeah. We lived in a few places in New York City. We lived at 56th and 6th right there in Midtown, probably catty corner to where the Ghostbusters uh, building was, which was on Park West. Uh, when I first moved to New York, we stayed in a sublet. Guy let us uh, use his place for a few months. And uh, because we were subletting, we eventually got found out. <laughs> Oddly enough, on the day that we were moving out of the place to move into our new place in, in Williamsburg, they kicked us out. We're like, oh, okay, this is good timing. We're already moving out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, New York living's fun. <laughs> lots of stuff to do. Lots of people around. Lots of good restaurants. Lots of good music. All good stuff. It's the reason people so like it. Wedding, uh, I actually uh, home sat for a week, didn't I? Yeah, nice little list of uh, pizza places to check out in Williamsburg. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Got to all, all good stuff. But yeah, quintessential New York. I do have some final thoughts. Uh, shall I go ahead first? Or yeah. you would you like to? Let's cross the streams here, Brian. <laughs> These are my final thoughts. I mean, but because it is just such a quintessential New York movie, it's uh, it's got Central Park, it's Columbia University, it's got Tavern on the Green, it's got the Gothic architecture, and I thought it was cool how uh, Dana is a musician in an orchestra. I mean, that's something that, that you don't see in a lot of you know outside of cities. I mean, obviously there's a, a symphony orchestra in a lot of cities, so I mean we have a mishmash of the, all these different people playing these different roles. You have a musician, you have accountants, you have scientists, entrepreneurs. They're all converging together to confront to conf- 
confront the forces that are trying to tear the city apart, like Trump. And so, <laughs> so it's just basically, they're all come together. And I just like that kind of quintessential New York kind of converging of very diverse people, but they're all united against this one uh, primary villain of this city trying to tear the city apart. But a couple more things uh, about Ghostbusters. Well, hang is, on a second. I think it kind of paved hang the way. Hang on a second. Let me, let me respond to that. You're right. It takes a village. Oh, okay. All right. So I, I like, I like right. that it aspect of it. Village. You know, and you actually made me think about what were acceptable uh, professions to establish characters like immediately. And to me, like symphony <laughs> orchestra cellist is kind of nebbish, little shut in focused on her music, <laughs> you know, doesn't have time to get out and about. And then it was also uh, Shelley Long's character in... The Money Pit. She was a oh, yeah. orchestra cellist as well. So maybe it was just a employment de rigueur for screenwriters back then. But anyway, please continue. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you with my words on this podcast. Yeah, you're right. Back in the 80s, it seemed like there was... Uh, oh, and Man with the One Red Shoe. He was a violinist. Tom Hanks. Yeah, there seemed to be uh, not as much anymore. We don't sort of see those kind of characters anymore. Just yep. uh, back in the 80s. So good point. Good point. Our bad guy from Die Hard was the orchestra conductor in The Money Pit. Oh, okay. Great, great. <laughs> Any more references in this tangent? No, nope, you may continue nope. with saying quintessential. <laughs> Just throw in another quintessential. Quintessentially. Quintessential. You're probably predicting that it's, a, I'm going to probably do a little plug, couple plugs here, but in a way, Ghostbusters uh, paved the way for my first short, the my uh, writing directing debut as a like a filmmaker my first short was annulment which is a horror comedy but uh, what's key to it and also key to ghostbusters is uh, even though all this crazy paranormal stuff is going on and um there's still uh two people a man and a woman just uh trying to see if he can uh, have a relationship so yeah it's interesting uh, uh peter is still flirting with dana even though he's dealing with some pretty crazy stuff and uh he, he, even um even when the climax is happening and they have rid of apocalypse, he's still kind of pining for Dana and he still hopes that the relationship can happen. So that that's kind of what I also try to do in annulment where it's two recently divorced people stuck in a house during a zombie apocalypse. I mean, yeah, there's zombies outside the door, but I mean, could they rekindle their, their romance? Who knows? And also, um, <laughs> but also I did, uh, I asked, I should point out that I also did a, a movie, a short movie called goat with a ghost in the name. It's ghost walks, not a comedy at all. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it actually started from, uh, if you allow me this quick little tangent, I got the story behind uh, ghost walks or I came up with the idea on, when I was living in England and uh, I went on a ghost walk in Bath and uh, I think the tourist or the tour guide, I mean, I think the tour guide was actually uh, semi hallucin, kind of a, someone who could, uh, an illusionist or can kind of conjure hallucinations. But because uh, there really were, there really were instances where they said, well, this ghost uh, really likes American boys and she tend, her perfume tends to smell like lavender. And that was something <laughs> that she brought up at the end of the tour. And I, sorry, but I was smelling lavender the whole time so who knows maybe maybe she was wearing it i don't know but um or maybe she sprayed it a little later on just (laughs) a little callback just lots of little instances yes yes instances like that so or there's ghosts (laughs) or there's ghosts i don't believe in ghosts but that was a interesting little moment there uh uh, and it kind of inspired this story because uh, this ghost walks is basically about a couple that have been to ghost walks and they get disappointed when they go to a, you know, a town where it's supposed to be haunted, but the ghost walk sucks. And that was my experience. And so after I had that really interesting uh, ghost walk in Bath, I went to what was supposed to be the most haunted town in uh, Europe. And that's York, I guess, York, England. But that ghost walk super sucked. So that's that's kind of the seed that planted this uh, story. Do you have any uh, ghost experiences or comedic ghost experiences, uh, Joe? 
I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I saw ghost walks and I, I, I did notice one point of comedy in there where the, where the ghost had a very visible tattoo. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, the score was pretty good too, though, right? Wasn't it? Tattoos carry over into the afterlife. That's right. The score for ghost walks won an award in the horror genre for best musical composition. And the musical composer who did that was yours truly. Yay. You can listen to Ghost Walks on, on SoundCloud. Air up Joe. He does a good job. He made the movie slightly better. Actually, quite a bit better. But um, Ready for the yeah. next one, Brian. <laughs> yeah, you'll definitely be included uh, with the next one. So unless Brian didn't say it enough, I just wanted to let you guys know that Ghostbusters is quintessential, quintessential, quintessential New York Key movie. That's the word that's going to come up Are you the gatekeeper? Hey, he pulls the wagon. I make the deals. You want to ride? If you haven't seen this movie... Go see it. In fact, you probably have seen this movie, so we're just not going to recommend it, but just hopefully you got to relive it a little with our remembering. the sign, and all prisoners will be released. We came, we saw, we kicked some ass, and this is Brian Stump signing off, and we'll fix it in post. Okay, we'll fix it in post. All right, excellent. You will perish in flames! What an asshole. You know, you don't act like a scientist. They're usually pretty stiff. You're more like a game show host. Wondering how Brian Stumpf got from published film professor to award-winning screenwriter filmmaker to co-host of film podcast with Brian and Joe? Brian's book, Movie Malcontent, is available in both paperback and Kindle. Simply use the search terms Movie Malcontent Stump. You'll laugh. You'll learn. You'll love Brian's incisive movie reviews, filmmaker interviews, and film fest journals. So bye. Hey, Joe, might you be able to recommend any graphic novels? Funny you should ask. The Robot War, a limited series, sci-fi action comedy, graphic novel, written by yours truly. Santa Barbara is under siege by a robot army in a devastating attack. A ragtag group of video game designers, led by a cocky wise-ass, battle across town to rescue his girlfriend and a school full of trapped children. Head to www.therobotwar.com and you can sign up for a pre-sale copy of The Robot War graphic novel.